Well, good morning. Or should I say welcome back? Wow. It's good to have a packed house today. That's kind of nice. Um, I'm glad that everybody's back. Uh, I'm glad that uh, you've all had an excellent summer. Um, I'm sorry because I can already hear the groaning of all of the kids and the uh, university students that now summer is over and you're back in school again. But, uh, but I'm there with you. I can say that. Like, I'm, I'm working on a graduate-level Greek course right now, and Daniel will be starting class up too. So we can, we can identify with this whole, oh, no, it's school time again, right? Um, but we're glad that you're back. And, and boy, it's a really, really good – fall is just such a – fall and the end of summer is just such a pivotal time for churches because not only are we all coming back, but everything's starting up again. Um, and, and there's an excitement kind of in the air because of all of the things that are getting ready to start happening. And whether that's, whether that's the classes uh, that we've been talking about with the children or the adult classes, I know we're starting a, we're starting a study in Hebrews up here in the auditorium, and uh, most likely later, later on in the fall we're going to be starting a secondary class on missional living that's going to be a discussion group that's happening downstairs in the fellowship area. But those are great opportunities for us to dig into the word together, to explore what it means to be a disciple of Jesus together. Uh, there's so many opportunities for our kids and our families that are happening. One of the ones that I really want to highlight, though, is the beginning of a lot of our small groups again. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but we have small groups meeting almost every day of the week in this church. Almost every day of the week, there are a group of us that are meeting together for the purpose of growing more like Christ together. And I think that's something that really kind of goes under the radar a lot of times. We don't necessarily know that that's going on. We don't realize that it's something that we desire for everybody to be a part of. But it is. And in fact, we're working at becoming much more intentional about our small group ministry. Um, one of those things that's been happening is that... Um, that with the elders' guidance and everything, Daniel and I had, had kind of begun to draft a philosophy document of what do we really want our small groups that we're going to call life groups be about. And so we're working through that process with our, with our, with our, uh, with our small groups of, of developing philosophy with them. And we're getting more intentional about, about keeping it up in people's awareness because realistically, we believe that for good good spiritual direction to happen in the church, ideally, we would love that everybody that associates themselves with Shelburne Street Church of Christ find their way into involvement with a life group. That's a pretty ambitious goal, okay? It's pretty ambitious for me to stand up here in front of the pulpit and say that, and, and to realize that that's something that we will have to keep striving for, but I think we believe it's important enough that the potential for Christ to change us is big enough that we should aim for that. And so we're going to. And so as part of that, through the month of September, as we're kind of kicking off these small groups again for the, for the, uh, for the year, and as we're trying to raise that awareness, we're going to be talking a little bit about the idea of, of small groups. What did, what did God design community to do in us? Why, why small groups? Why do we think that that's a good answer for the needs of community? And what are they supposed to look like, and how are they supposed to affect us? So that's what we're going to be spending the month talking about, and we're going to be doing it in a series that I'm calling Merge. See, merging is when you take two things that are not related to each other necessarily, and you bring them together, and they become something else. 
Like if I merge two lanes of traffic, I have cars that are not necessarily in relation to each other at all, but then now all of a sudden they are. And sometimes that's bumpy. I've been on the Pat Bay Highway a few times. I know how that looks, right? Okay. But at the same time, merging is something that, that, that kind of happens naturally or is supposed to happen naturally in our lives. And yet I think we find ourselves in a, in, a, in a place, I think we find ourselves in a culture where when we're talking about people instead of automobiles and merging together is something that God designed to happen naturally with us. We are designed to be in relationship with one another, and yet that often looks bumpy. It gets difficult. And, and honestly, in a lot of ways, our culture tends to pull the other way. It tends to separate rather than merge. And so in order to be able to know how to come together, it's something we have to do very intentionally, and it's something that we have to have a greater vision for. We have to understand why it's important to do it, because it's hard to do sometimes. And so if we don't have a greater understanding of the why, then there's no reason to come together in Christ. And we can just live our very, very separate lives, even as Christians, even as people, even as people that believe that God is transforming us, it's very, very easy for us to live that trans, try to live that transformed life separately, and I don't believe that that's something that God intended us to do. And so that's what we're going to be speaking about over the next few weeks, is, is how has God designed us to come together? And we're going we're gonna to frame it in the idea of, of, of small groups, in the idea of life groups. But what I want us to do is catch a bigger vision in the middle of that, of the why. Why has God decided that it is good for us to come together in him. I really love Tom Hanks as an actor. Um, he, he has been in so many movies that I really enjoy. And, and I don't, he's one of the few ones that I think can jump genres very well. Like, I mean, Joe versus the Volcano is still like one of my very favorite comedies, okay? And if you haven't seen this movie, it is wacky funny, okay? It's really, really good. And it was, and it was he and Meg Ryan before he and Meg Ryan were cool together, okay? All right. Before everybody was like, "Oh, they're a great couple." Like, it's so funny because they never, they, they 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 interact so much more in this movie than they did in all the you know like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail and everything. They're really really good together. It's a great movie. And I've seen him in you know Saving Private Ryan. I've seen him in Apollo 13. He does a really good job, right? But probably the movie that I enjoy him the most in is Castaway. And I think that was probably that had to be probably one of the hardest movies for, for him to do, because who do you dialogue with in that movie? <laughs> You're on a deserted island. You don't talk to anybody, right? Having to having to fill up a close to two hour movie with some of the sparsest dialogue that's ever been done in a movie. That's a very very challenging thing for an actor. If you kn I mean I think most of us probably know the storyline, but but just kind of as a refresher. The story is about a guy named Chuck Nolan, who is a, uh, he is a logistics expert for FedEx. And for him, time is money. And we will get that package there on time because that, and he's totally bought into that vision. And he lives that vision. But then something comes in that disrupts that vision. And on a trans-Pacific trans flight, he hits this weather storm and the plane goes down and everyone's lost except for him. And he finds himself on a deserted island. And this movie chronicles the next four years of his life as he lives in the absence of community. 
And one of the things that, I mean, this movie does a lot of things that I enjoy, but one of the things it does that I really enjoy is it really explores the question, what happens to us when a basic need that we didn't know was a basic need is taken away from us? Obviously, there's, there's, there's a whole lot about, well, how am I going to get water? How am I going to get food? How am I going to get shelter? How am I going to make fire? You know, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff in there about that. But then you get into the, the greater questions, the basic needs that he did not know were basic needs. Like, what do I do when I realize that I am in complete and utter isolation and I, I don't know if I was meant to live that way? And it's interesting that, that as he finds himself in isolation, he begins to create substitutes. A package that has not been delivered becomes a reason for living. A volleyball with a suspicious handprint becomes a companion. And, and, and not just sort of a companion... At this hole in his solitude drives him to morph this volleyball and in, in transfer all of the value and the identity and the relational attributes of a person into Wilson. Even to the point where he gets into fights with it and has to apologize later. Okay, Which is wacky unless you're trying desperately to create a substitute for the real thing. And then we look at it, and it's no longer wacky. It is emotionally stirring. The message about, the communi about community in Castaway is very, very, very clear. Humanity has a need for community that is as powerful as any basic need. And the complexity of our need will drive us to very, very great lengths to create substitutes when the genuine article is not available. Now, I think the Bible makes it very, very clear for us that God has designed us to be in community. You don't have to get very far into the Word of God to see, first off, that God exists in community. Even in the very, very first verses of the creation account, you see God talking to himself. Okay? That was not a slip-up. That was on purpose. But the language that is used is not... I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's let us make, let us create, let us work. God exists in community. That's one of the very, very basic understandings, although, it's, although when you get into the doctrine of the Trinity, it's mind-blowing. But it's still one of the very basic elements of what it means to understand God, is that God exists in perfect community. And when he makes us in his likeness, that need to exist in community is one of those things. You look into the accounts of Genesis 2, and you see God create this world, and you see this very intimate creation act between him and mankind. And almost immediately, even though, even though there, is, there is a garden, there is a job, there is a purpose, there is a reason for living, everything is set up exactly the way it should be. And everything up until this point is, you know, 
God makes this and says it's good. God makes this and says it's good. God creates humankind, puts humankind in the garden, looks at humankind isolated in the garden, and the first thing you hear is, you know, it's not good for us to be alone. And realistically, yes, I mean, a lot of this passage has to do with the marital relationship. But I want us to pull back out of that for a second and just realize what God is saying there. Just realize the fact that, that from, the very, from the very fabric of your being that mirrors your creator, you were designed to be in relationship with other people. Now, this is not a sermon to try and convert everybody into being an extrovert, okay? I, I have a closet introvert, okay? He is in there somewhere, all right? And there are days, especially a Tuesday, Tuesday, when, it, when all of a sudden it was like, hey, guess what? Labor Day weekend is done. <laughs> Rain, okay? Did you, you remember that day? Yeah, of course you remember that day. You were like, what happened to my summer? Okay. Everybody's closet introvert came out. Man, nobody wanted to talk to me. And you know what? I didn't want to talk to anybody either. And I'm having to do a staff meeting. Sorry, guys. Yeah, you know. But, but we were just, we all kind of felt it. We were just like, ugh. And so I'm not necessarily saying that, that everybody needs to be, this is not a sermon to say everybody needs to be like me, the guy who normally is just fine with walking into a room full of strangers, and they're not strangers, they're just friends I haven't met yet, okay? Not everybody's like me, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, whether being with people, whether being with people charges you up or wears you out, whether you, whether you find great time in solitude or great time in community, God designed us to have a balance of both. We see Jesus taking exceptional lengths to be alone with God and be in solitude, and we see him taking just as great of lengths to try and be in intentional community with other people. He chooses 12 people out of his disciples to be in community with and of that he chooses three of them to be in exceptionally intimate community with he does not believe that just being connected with the father is enough for him to go be about god's business in order to be about god's business he needs to remain in connection with the father and he needs to remain in community with humanity he needs both and he does both in balance and that's how god designed us to be you and I, as we follow the example of Christ, we follow an example of community. For some of us, we find ourselves out of balance either way. We don't, we don't find ourselves spending enough time alone with God, and we don't find ourselves spending very, very good time with people around us. One of the things that I think was the key about Jesus in solitude was that he withdrew from people's presence so that he could be fully present with other people when he was with them. Right? And so when we consider both of these aspects of what it means to be in relationship, times where we withdraw and we are with God, and times where we are with others and we are with God, we need to look at both of those. It's not an either-or thing. It's that God created us for both. 
But like I said, when we have an absence of that, I think it's in our nature, much like, much like Tom Hanks' character Chuck, to create substitutes. Consider this. Consider how easy it is for me to communicate with people today. If I wanted to, I could whip out my phone right now and I could post a status on Facebook or Twitter and I could get responses around the world within a matter of seconds. Okay? If I want to, I can go sit down at my laptop, I can open up Skype, I can open up a Google Hangout, and I can go spend time talking face-to-face with my friends who are missionaries in China right now. Okay? I mean, it's 10 o'clock, almost 11 o'clock in the morning here, and it's like 11 o'clock at night there, so I might wake them up, but I can have a conversation with them if I want to right now. And I can see them face-to-face. I can call on a cellular network, and I can talk to my dad right now, although, again, I'm probably going to interrupt him because he's in church, but... I could do that. Oh, wait, we both have iPhone 5s. I can FaceTime him right now, and I can have a video conference in my hand. Excellent. But we have more ways to communicate with people than at any other time in history. We can communicate quicker, faster, with more people, in more, in more ways than ever before in recorded history. And yet when we ask people about their understanding of community, it seems our understanding of community is fraying at the edges. We don't know why we communicate with people so often anymore. We don't even necessarily know how to communicate with people anymore, much less the why. And that sets us up with an interesting problem. Is, is the answer that, is it the answer like the good old days were better and that the, the face-to-face conversation is the only way to really do it? I think there's a lot of value in the face-to-face conversation, but I think there's a lot of value in being able to Facebook status too. I mean, I know, I know, that, I know that without things like Facebook and email and cellular phones, we would not have near as many people right now praying over Lynn and Alan and Brian and Crystal as we do right now. But we have people all over Canada and all over the United States. And anybody who's, anybody who's got any sort of relationship to them knows and is praying. Because we've got the why about why we communicate in a situation like that. Because we need to be in community with one another in order to be drawn closer into Christ and to draw others closer into Christ. Our reading this morning from 1 John really, really talks about the why of being in community. This this passage is so chock full of so many things. But what I really want us to take out of this are, are two really, really important points today. It's the why of loving and loving one another. It's such a familiar passage, I think it's possible for us to lose the significance of what's really being said here. Consider the power of John's statement in chapter 4, verse 8. Look at this. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't really know God. Because God, in essence, is love. And then later in verse 12, no one has seen God face to face. But if we love one another, we see God. He is able to live in us, and his love is made complete in us. 
Those are astounding statements. Those are huge. John's words give us the reason why we were given the need to be in community in the first place. Because being in relationship with other people is the most concrete way I have of both knowing how to effectively love God and knowing how to be loved by God. This idea is kind of circular in nature if you think about it because that understanding of God's love in my relationships, it sets me free to love others around me better. Because if my identity is concrete in the fact that I am a person created to love God and be loved by God, then I don't get, I don't get hung up in all of the other stuff of, of how people are trying to define me or, or how people that don't know how to love are messing with me. I can just be who I was created to be, and it frees me to love others. And as I do that, as I do that, it comes back around because as I love others, it leads to a better understanding of God's love. And so my, idea, my identity becomes even more formed, and I am more free to love, and I am more free to be God to the world around me, and it just goes on and on. If I don't know how to do that, though, my fragmented relationships mar my ability to understand who God created me to be, which makes me either try to dominate my environment or withdraw from my environment. And it makes me less likely to love others, which makes me less likely to understand what my purpose on this earth is for, and so on and so forth. Do you see, like, John is setting up two circular patterns of how to live life. Here's with purpose, and here's without purpose. The one who loves knows God and knows themselves and knows God's love, and the one who does not love does not really know what they're talking about, even if they say, oh yeah, I know God, and I know what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, and I know what this life is all about. Community is a huge part of that. Because community is the lab of where we learn how to love. I know like in, in, in Daniel's, uh, Daniel's class that he's getting ready to take, he's got a lecture, and then you've got, what's it called? The tutorial, okay? I, I mean, but, it, but it's, he's got the lecture part where you get the information, and then he's got the tutorial where you actually sit down and you, you hash it out and you go, okay, so what? And for so many of us, we are engaged in the lecture part of how to be a Christian. And we are not engaged in the lab. We have not gone to the tutorial. We come to the Word, we read the Word, we get the information. We come to the Bible class, we listen to the teacher, we get the information. We come to the sermon, we listen to the good-looking preacher talk to us about Jesus. And then we, and we get the information, but we don't go to the lab. We don't go to the tutorial. And John's like, I'll tell you what the lab is. The lab is right here. How do you love each other? And then he says, the lab is what prepares you for the real world, which is out there, which is how do you love them? But if you don't know how to love these people who all claim Christ together, how on earth are you going to love all those people out there that are going to hate your guts for loving Christ sometimes? What are you going to do? You know, I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not always associated, like, totally on with all of the, the Church of Christ um, traditions and identity. 
but we still call ourselves a part of the churches of Christ. Anybody see that? Anybody see that article that's going around the internet where we're like being compared to a cult now? Anybody see this? I posted a response on it on on, on Facebook. It's very interesting. Um, it's 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 very it's a very sensational article. And and by sensational, I mean nobody's done their research. They're just kind of throwing rocks. Okay. But how do we respond to that? How are we supposed to respond in love when people are like, now nah, you're just like some right-wing nut cult people, you know? You're out, to, you're out to sabotage people's lives. How do we respond to that? Do we respond with anger? Do we respond with rebuttals? Do we get into a fight with them? How do we love people when they hate our guts for being Christians, for following Jesus? Well, we're not going to know that unless we have figured out how to love each other, we that are all following Christ together. This is the lab. This is the tutorial. This is where we work out what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Okay? And we don't watch a whole lot of TV around my house. We will watch more now that it's the NFL season. Go Broncos. Um, My kids do occasionally watch old cartoons or like those decades-old, uh, you know, sitcoms and stuff from like TV Land, and, and those kind of channels. And uh, we were we were looking for something for them to watch. Yes, like oh, I don't know how long ago it was. It was a couple weeks back, and an episode of Gilligan's Island was on. And I've forgotten how hokey Gilligan's Island is, man. Like when I was a kid, it was like, oh yeah, this is kind of funny. Like. This episode that we were watching, Gilligan, like, gets hit in the nose with a coconut, and the doctor has to fool him into thinking he has performed plastic surgery so that he will not touch it and just let the thing heal on its own. It's just wacky. It really was. Okay? But, and, and my kids were rather unimpressed, okay? I just, they were not like, oh, let's watch more Gilligan's Island. No, they were like, oh, okay. You know, plays like, where's Transformers? You know, I'm like, <sighs> but... I, you know, I thought a little bit more about this afterward, and more importantly, the dynamic of those seven castaways from the SS Minnow, and I realized that there is a really great descriptor of who God designed the church to be in that. If you think about it, you have seven people that are from all over geographically, all over in their, in their background, all over in their story. They are so different people. Not one of them is alike, and they all have some strengths, and they also have some really, really blatant weaknesses, okay? And yet their circumstances, they get brought together, sharing life together. And I see the same when I look at us, when I look at Shelburne. We have children and teenagers and university students and singles and couples and seniors and people in every life stage imaginable. And we have people who have experienced church their whole lives and people who are experiencing what it means to be in the community of church for the very, very first time right here. Maybe even today is your first time. I don't know, but we're from all over, right? We've got Lillian who's spent 98 years, most of it following Jesus, right? And then we've got Parker who's coming here for his first Sunday, right? Think about that. Think about the range that we have of people that have been brought together called together, I mean, that's really what the name church means, is they that are called together, or they that are called out of the world, even, okay, brought together for the specific purpose 
of being together in the name of Christ. God brings us all together, our smooth and peaceful lives, our lives that have been and are being rocked with trauma. We come together into this time, this community, to experience the journey of life together. And God takes our stories and he merges them all into his epic story of love together. There's one really critical observation I want to make about this wacky little band of sitcom characters, okay, in Gilligan's Island. They have a common purpose together. And that's what made their community work. There were two primary objectives for them. One was to just survive on the island. And two was that they were constantly working toward the deliverance from their temporary dwelling that was not really their home. One thing they clearly realized was that the only way that that was going to happen was by sticking together and staying with each other, no matter what. And that really flies in the face of our culture. That really flies in the face of our deserted island stories, doesn't it? What's one of the most popular reality shows right now, reality TV shows? Survivor. Why? Because it's last man or last woman standing. And even if we're on a deserted island, I still have time to stick you in the back. Trust me. I'll get your help for a while. We'll form temporary alliances. And then, when it most suits me, I gotcha. And we love that stuff. Why do we love that stuff? Because we've lost the idea that nobody gets off unless we all get off. We don't make it together unless we all make it together. And Christ's view of the world is... We don't make it unless we all make it. So we better stick together. And we better be constantly inviting people to be like, do you want to survive this life? Do you want something better? Do you want to have eternal life? Well, we're all in this together, so why don't you join us? But if we've lost the plot, if we, if we, think, if we think that surviving and being delivered from this life looks more like survivor than Gilligan's Island. We've missed the point. We have missed God's, God's big idea that in the loving of each other, in the bearing of each other's burdens, in the encouraging of each other, in the walking with each other, that that is really how we survive. In the laying down of your life for somebody else is how you really live. I believe Jesus said something kind of like that, right? We need each other. I challenge you to do this sometime. Take a Bible concordance. Find all the scriptures from Acts to Revelation in which you find the word together and see what the disciples of Jesus did together. I mean, just a quick sampling. They met together. They prayed together. They share material possessions together. They eat together. They consult and advise each other on decisions. They plan and they strategize together. They work together. They rejoice together. They stand together when they are under attack. Jesus did not intend for us to follow him in isolation. He didn't. It's not in his plan. It's not. And so anyone, anytime I hear somebody telling me about how they follow Jesus but don't think it's important to be connected to a group of people trying to live like him, I'm struck by how much of what they've missed about the gospel. Wherever it's possible, Christ intends us to be in this together not just for a few hours on Sunday, not just during official church meetings, but through the day-to-day course of life 
It is in that kind of relationship that we become truly aware of just how loved we are by God and how we are able to truly love like God. We become true disciples in a community of disciples. And our communal craving is satisfied in being a part of his community. I think of all the things that God has designed community to be an answer to. Loneliness, fatigue, defeat, vulnerability, despair, fear of others, fear of self. All these things were threatening to drive us away from others, drive us away from our primarily, primary relationship with God, and, uh, and drive us into isolation and misery. I heard, I heard one Christian author put it this way. All of these things make hermits out of us. They drive us into hiding, and yet the cave that we might hide ourselves in holds no answers. Christ distributes courage through community. He dissipates doubt through fellowship. He never deposits all the knowledge in one person, but he distributes like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that knowledge to many. And when you interlock your understanding with me and we share our discoveries, when we mix, when we mingle, when we confess, when we pray, that is when Christ speaks and we become who we were meant to be. I think of all the ways community has been a part of our life just this week, just today. Even. It's been a tough week for a lot of people, okay? Our family included. I mean, going in... Going into this weekend, we, we, uh, we put, going into this past weekend, we put Bailey, our dog, down. She'd been with us for nine years. She's an old, old dog, right? And, uh, and that was a tough situation for us. But even just how many, how many people around at the church just wished us well about a dog. And we had a family of good, good friends that was up from Washington. And they were just, they were already going to be there anyway. And it was just like God just brought them right alongside us so that we could so that we could grieve with them you know because we do grieve about that we grieve about loss and i think of i think of this week of having a a a fellow minister in the area who who out of the blue just calls me up and goes man i need to have lunch with you i need to have lunch with you real bad and we sit down and we talk and he's got something going on in his congregation that's just blowing him up and how even out of the comfort that I had received a couple of days ago, was able to comfort him. And I, think, and I think of the situation right now, even as we talk, where part of our body is in a hospital room right now. But they're not alone. They're surrounded by physical family. They're surrounded by spiritual family. The prayers of the saints in like four different time zones and beyond are all over them right now. God did not mean for us to live in isolation. We were meant to experience the transitions and the tragedies of this life in community, together. If we're in trouble, says James, we're supposed to come together. If we have something to rejoice about, we're supposed to come together. Even when we are sick, and when that enemy that has no power, death, comes knocking, we are supposed to be in community. 
That's the design of our creator. That's who we were created to be. Life is tough, and when it is tough, that is when we need the community of Christ to make it together or we don't make it. And I think that's why we call this time that we are heading into at the table communion. It's not a real big stretch that communion with Christ and community are all rooted in the same words because they're rooted in the same ideas. Every time we come together to take the bread and the cup, we do it together. And I think Jesus institutes this by design. You think about it, under stress and worry and pain in his upcoming journey to the cross, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. Jesus knew and displayed the value of being in community as a necessity for the disciple. And he makes that available to you and I every week as we come to the table of mercy together. We connect with Christ, but we connect with him together. There is a, there is a vertical component to communion where we are connecting and having our identity reformed in coming to the table with Christ, but there is also a horizontal element where I'm not just connecting by myself, but I'm connecting with my family, and I'm connecting with my ministry staff, and I'm connecting with my elders, and I'm connecting with our deacons and ministry leaders, and I am connecting with everybody in here that claims the name of Christ, and we are connecting with everybody across the globe of every tribe and color and fashion that claims the name of Christ. That happens every week. That happens every time we come together. It is incredible. And I wonder how often we miss that because we've just isolated one component, that horizontal, com that vertical component of, uh, of communion, and we, and we get to thinking that it's just me reflecting on Jesus and not me being connected to everybody around me. All of us with our stories and our needs and our strengths and our weaknesses and our triumphs and tragedies are being called to remember Christ. To be joined back together in Christ through a sacrifice. You need the person next to you right now. You need the person in front of you and behind you right now. You need the hands serving you the bread and the wine. You need the person that your hands are serving the bread and the wine to. And so as we get ready to come to the table now, let's respond both with gratitude for our salvation and the commitment to the life of community that God has called us to that satisfies that craving that is so deeply woven into the fabric of who we are. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for creating us in your image. Thank you for creating us in an image that's not isolated. Thank you for creating us like you with the ability to live in harmony with others so that we could understand how to live in harmony with you. And God, thank you for times like these where, where when some of us are rejoicing and some of us are weeping and some of us are, are, um, are just feeling full and energized by life and some of us feel like we're hanging on to life by a thread. 
where we come together with all of everything that makes us who we are and we become your body again, even as we take your body. Thank you for your sacrifice of your body and your blood that makes that possible. Thank you for the fact that even now, your son holds us all together. Not just physically, but relationally. Holds us in relation to each other. And Father, my prayer is, is that we come to the table now, that we will respond not just with thanksgiving for your son's sacrifice, but we will respond in concrete thanksgiving for the people that are around us that are following you. That we will respond with love and compassion and thanksgiving for the world around us that was made in your image, these people around us that may not even know what they were created for, but that we can respond with love and compassion toward them. Lord, let our response not just be limited to you. Let our response be to love as you have loved us because you first loved us. In the holy name of your Son, Christ, we pray.